The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. I value white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. Must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. Whether it's a movie, a book, a play, doesn't matter. The climax is, in my opinion, the single most important part of any story. And, and, and I'll tell you why, because anyone can start a story. It's finishing a story that is actually the hard part, because it's in this climax, that third act of a story where all meaning is imbued. A story adds up to something, and whether or not your audience or reader or viewer is satisfied when everything is said and done comes down to what happens in that climax right? A tragedy can mean one thing. A comedy or a victory uh, or overcoming an antagonist, that can mean something entirely different. I, I'm inclined to, to think about, uh, you know, whodunits, right? This very popular genre in storytelling, a, a story about a murder and a detective or a journalist or an investigator whose responsibility it is to figure out who committed the murder. At a glance, when you're starting to tell a mystery story, you think that it's all about who did it, who did it, who did it. But the truth of the matter is the audience is actually more interested in why they did it, right? We were watching the movie Knives Out and my wife is really good at these mystery stories. It was only partway through you know, probably halfway through that she started to figure out who had committed the murder. But the funny thing is, is even once she knew who the murderer was in Knives Out, she still needed to know why they did it. It's a why done it, not a who done it. So climaxes, everybody wants to know why, why is this story the case? In fact, uh, another point of reference for this, there is an entire YouTube channel dedicated to how it should have ended. I'm sure anybody has, has heard of this YouTube channel or gone and seen their videos. And the whole concept is that by simply changing the ending of the movie, you can make it more satisfying or a better movie. Now, I disagree with uh, a number of things that they say on that channel because I think most of them are done just to be humorous or to poke holes in the story. And I've got news for everybody. Every fiction story is, well fiction. So at the end of the day, you're always going to be able to poke holes in the story because it didn't actually happen. It's a, it's a creation, but I'm not here to belabor that point. The reason we're talking today is to understand the importance of the climax and then what you can do as a storyteller or a writer to improve upon your climax. So first off, let's, let's get our nomenclature, right? Let's discuss this with the appropriate terms. Many people have different definitions for what the climax in a story is. I see it as the point of greatest tension. So when you're watching a movie or you're reading the book, it's the point at which you're finally feeling like, oh my gosh, like it, the tension can't get any greater. Once the climax is passed, we naturally have new balance and a deflation of tension, right? And that's how you know the climax has happened. Another approach to this is understanding when the major dramatic question, the MDQ, has been answered. Every story, at least those that follow a typical three-act structure, uh, will have a major dramatic question. It is the question that is with us through the whole story, and we're um, eager to have it answered. For example, in Lord of the Rings, the major dramatic question would be, will Frodo destroy the ring? Which I should also make uh, a mention here real quick about spoiler alerts. We are talking about the ending of stories. And here in a minute, we're going to dive in deep into a number of different endings and discuss them at length. Which means if you have not watched one of these movies or read one of these books that we're referencing, when we get to that point, you may want to pause and go read it before the ending is ruined. Because as you'll see, not knowing the ending is part of the magic of the climax. It's part of the magic of storytelling. So back to the major dramatic question, right? In Lord of the Rings, will Frodo destroy the ring? Well, the tension 
of the entire movie builds up to the point in which we find out whether or not Frodo destroys the ring. Now, there may be many other things happening, other characters going on journey, but the main core storyline is asking that major dramatic question, that MDQ, and so the climax is the point at which that question is answered. Another def definition of the climax uh, in a story comes to us from a book called Writing the Picture. Uh, it's a screenwriting book uh, by Robin U. Rusin and William Missouri Downs. And they say the following. These, these guys are uh, experienced screenwriters, both graduates from UCLA. I actually, of all the screenwriting books that I've read, I prefer theirs the most. Again, it's called Screenplay, Writing the Picture. They say the following. The climax in a formula three-act screenplay is usually defined as the moment the antagonist is defeated. Now, the interesting part of this definition is, okay, how do we define the antagonist? Because often the antagonist comes in the form of an entity, say a Darth Vader, uh, which again, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about Star Wars here in a second. But you have a Darth Vader, and the moment that that antagonist is, is vanquished or that they destroy our protagonist well now we know that we've reached the climax so this is this is pretty basic stuff right um but let's let's talk about it a little bit for any of those who aren't familiar with the standard three-act structure this is something that most hollywood films follow and even books can usually fall into this a little more although the ability to uh, have a much more lengthy story, makes it so a book can meander a little, little bit more and go deeper. It's less structured, in my opinion, than, say, uh, a blockbuster movie. In the book that I previously referenced, uh, Writing the Picture, they describe it the following way. They say Act 1 is the situation where we understand the world, the balance, the character, and the rules of the story we're going to hear. Act two is complications. It's often described as rising and falling action where the main character's life is tipped on its side and complications keep happening that either make things better or worse or they lead towards the climax or away from it. And ultimately, act three is the conclusion where it's all wrapped up. So act three is the most difficult part of any story to write. In fact, good writers will understand their ending before they even start writing. And here's why. Because act one, it's usually pretty fun. You're setting up your world, you're creating your character, you're uh, creating the rules, and that's all fun and, and, and in my opinion, fairly easy. You're just coming up and you're just making decisions. Is it a man, is it a woman? Are they old, are they young? Um, does this come from you or is this a story you heard? Is this based on something, right? Uh, does this happen on earth? Is it in the past, right? You're just, you're just answering, uh, questions for the most part then you have act two which is what i would call the adventure it's where all the scenes that you have in your mind of things that could happen that could go wrong uh they they happen here in act two but after you've done all that and you've just made decisions and had cool things happen and an adventure happens with your character at the end of the day it all has to come to a point where it means something and i want to give you an example of how this is so critical and how easy it is actually to start a story, keep it interesting, have fun things happen, and then to realize that the climax at the end of the day, the why behind the entire story is actually the thing that matters most. So first year at film school, my uh, I had a class in production and uh, it had a practicum which was led by a fellow student who was a few years ahead of us in the program. And we're going to call him Brandon. One day Brandon shows up to class and he's super late and he comes in and he's flustered and he sets his things down and he's like, oh my gosh, you guys, you won't believe this. University Parkway was a mess. He's like, there was just really bad traffic. But guys, like you're not going to believe what happened. Like we're all sitting there in traffic and you know how on University Parkway, how there has that turn and then there's like this steep hill as it comes down into the valley. You won't believe it. We're sitting there in traffic and there's a hearse and it's coming towards us. But again, we're all in bumper to bumper traffic. So it's moving really slowly up the hill and it's moving the opposite direction from me. And Brandon is like, so I'm watching this hearse because it's like the only interesting. I'm like, wow, uh, that's really unfortunate. I hope they didn't have somewhere important to be because, uh, you know, usually a hearse does. Anyway, 
he says he's sitting there and right about the point that the hearse reaches the top of the hill, um, something happens and it kind of lurches and bumps back and the back door opens and legit a coffin comes sliding out of the hearse. And, and at this point, Brandon's eyes are wide eyed and he's like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The coffin falls and it starts to roll down the hill and the hearse was in the, the, the lane furthest to the right. And so the coffin comes out and it immediately hits near the gutter and the sidewalk. And that acts as like this funnel and it just keeps rolling down the hill. And we're like, what? And, and we all know the area. And he says, yeah, I, like I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, that hill's steep. So this thing just keeps going and I'm watching it and it goes down the hill. And I'm wondering like, where is this thing going to stop? I'm like, I can't believe what's happening. Well, as you all know, on University Parkway at the bottom of the hill, they have a CVS. And it's like right there at the bottom of the hill where the road turns and the coffin goes down. And when it hits that turn, it pops the curb and goes running right up and slams into the sidewalk right in front of the CVS. And all of us are thinking, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this is happening. And then Brandon says, and you won't believe what happened next. He said the coffin sprung open, a skeleton leaned out, and he says very loudly, uh, 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 you got something because I can't stop this a coffin. The groans in the room at this point in the story were tremendous. He had us hook, line, and sinker. We could not believe what we were hearing. And because he peppered it with so many realistic details based on a world that we knew, because we all should get to school, travel down University Parkway. We knew the hill. We knew the CVS. It all seemed so real. And, and he didn't break character once while telling this story that we were hooked. We were interested up to the ending. It was a good story. But the moment that the story ended... And we realized that it was all a bunch of crap. And that his entire storytelling was building up to a really bad pun. You know, can't stop this coffin. <sighs> ah, it was, it was on the verge of frustrating that we had spent that much time listening to this story. Nobody laughed. Everybody just stared and gawked. And here's why. Because once we knew the story wasn't real, once we knew that the story was building up to just a dumb, it was just a, a, a really long joke, well, it took all the meaning out of it. This is just a corny punchline. So, so what's my point with this? You can take any event that is out of the ordinary and grab an audience. You start a story where your main character's walking to school. It's an ordinary day. He seems like an ordinary kid. A van rolls up, the door gets thrown open, and a dude with a gnarly beard grabs the kid and throws him into the car and then drives off. You put that on screen, you make that in the opening story of your book, and you'll hook your audience. They'll be like, uh-oh, this is out of the ordinary. I am interested. Especially if you can convey curiosity through mystery or pending danger, then your audience will they'll just be hooked out of the gate. But the thing is, storytelling is not that easy because of this thing that we're discussing today called the climax. It all has to add up to something. Now, there is a quote that I love. I wrote it down. And in preparing to record this today, I looked all over the internet to find the actual source of it. I believe, in my memory, this came from an interview with M. Night Shyamalan. And I really enjoy his films. Uh, I know there's a lot of controversy with this director, but I, I love a lot of the things that he does in his storytelling. And I think he has some very clever and uh, rather skillful ways of building a story um, that fits right along with this quote. So if I'm wrong and this quote didn't come from M. Night Shyamalan, don't sue me. Uh, don't shoot me. And uh, But as far as I know, this came from M. Night. And I love it. It says the following. The climax of a story has to be both surprising, but on second thought, clearly the only way that it could have ended in order to be satisfying. Now, I want to let that sink in a little bit. The climax of a story has to be both surprising, but on second thought, clearly the only way it could have ended. 
when it ends, it has to surprise you. You have to be like, oh, I did not see that coming or, oh, wow, okay, that's how it's all tied up together. But then after you know how it all is tied up together, every other element in the story has to add up to work with the way that that ending happened. This is no small task, and here is why. Because in order for it to be surprising, it can't be expected. But if that's clearly the only way that the story could end, then shouldn't it be something the audience would anticipate? So this isn't a contradiction, it's a paradox. It's this really interesting dance where you have to convince the audience that something else is going to happen or that they're uh, often the best way this is done is if you can spend your entire time convincing the audience that there is no way this can end good and then you find a way for it to still end good, boom, you've done it. As long as you don't break certain rules. You've all heard of this term of a deus ex machina. It's this idea of these old plays, I think by Sophocles, um, who wrote these plays where he'd get his characters into all sorts of trouble. He does whatever he wants to his characters, has bad things happen to him, uh, children pass away, uh, storms come in and destroy the kingdom. And it's like these plays where all these bad things happen. And rather than having the character dig themselves out of it or find a clever solution, which would have been a good climax, this playwright would always have a god, Zeus, or have some sort of god figure or angel figure intervene and rectify all the problems. Now, this was an interesting strategy to storytelling. The problem is, is it's not satisfying because what is the meaning? That no matter what you do, you can't solve your own problems and some other force has to step into your life and do it for you. And this doesn't resonate really well with most audience to the point that a deus ex machina, which is what the storytelling strategy is called, a deus ex machina is where the hero doesn't solve the problem, but some exterior force comes in and solves it for you. This is another example of being able to surprise your audience. So why is this idea of a deus ex machina not satisfying? It's because it's a bait and switch. And because while it's surprising at the end, it is there, there are clearly many other ways that the story could end. So it surprises you to the point that you say, really? That's how it ended? I think of it as the story where all these crazy things happen and then the character wakes up from a dream. It was all a dream. That is not satisfying because, because it ruins the entire meaning of the story. So with this in mind, the idea that the climax has to both surprise but then clearly be the only way it could have ended in order to be satisfying. Let's take a look, of, look at a few examples. Uh, emphasizing spoiler alerts, we're gonna be talking about Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games, Ender's Game, Castaway, and Return of the Jedi, real quick. If you haven't seen those movies or read those books, go and do so before proceeding. The ending of Lord of the Rings. Does this achieve this concept of surprising, but then obviously the only way it could have ended? I contest that it does. At the end of Lord of the Rings, we see Frodo at Mount Doom with Samwise Gamgee, and Frodo is standing over the edge of the volcano. He has the moment where he holds it out and he can drop the ring into the volcano and end it all. We'll have finished the story victorious and everybody is rooting for him to do that. But the surprise, there at the last minute, Frodo says, no, the ring is mine. He rips it off the chain. He puts on the ring. It looks like a failure. So we're surprised. But now let's think back about everything we've learned about the ring. One, Isildur couldn't throw it in the fire. Two, Gandalf won't even touch the ring because it will pervert him. He's like, it would wield in me a power that will turn me dark. We have been told time and time again that this ring, it wields a power over you. So in fact, if Frodo had just dropped the ring, it would have actually disproved everything we thought about the ring. In my opinion, Frodo has to take the ring at the end. You cannot carry the ring for a year and not be affected by its power. Otherwise, the rules of the story don't work. So while it surprises us, it's actually clearly the only way it could have happened. Let's proceed. Frodo puts on the ring. Then what happens? Boom, Samwise, hit in the head with a rock. Gollum stands up, he runs at Frodo, he jumps on Frodo and it's this amazing scene and it's uh, the way you imagine it in the book as well as the way it's depicted in the movie is, is rather apt, perfect in my opinion. We see Gollum 
floating in the air as he struggles with Frodo. And then Gollum holds up Frodo's hand and we're like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And then Gollum does what only Gollum can do. And we are shocked a second time. Gollum bites Frodo's finger off. Frodo screams. His hand is bleeding. Gollum falls to the ground. He takes the ring and that's, he, he has it. He finally has the one thing that he's wanted. And before he can put it on, he holds it to his chest and says, my precious. And Frodo runs and fights Gollum for the ring. In their struggle, Gollum tumbles over the edge. So the ring is vanquished in a struggle between the two people who had ownership of the ring. Now, this is also surprising because while we knew in the back of our mind that Gollum was there, you don't expect him to show up there at the end. And even if you do expect him to show up, you're really not expecting him to bite Frodo's finger off. It's, it's shocking. But now let's take it through the second litmus test. Is this clearly the only way it could have ended? Yes. Think back to Gandalf when he's talking to Frodo, when Frodo first takes the ring, when they first learn it's the ring of power. At least that's the way it happens in the book. This happens in Moria in the movie where, and it's the iconic scene where, where Gandalf looks at Frodo and says, pity, it is pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And he proceeds to tell Frodo essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact quote, um, but he essentially says, I think that Gollum still has a part to play in all of this. And that is very much in a line with everything that happens thereafter. At the end of the day, Lord of the Rings, while it is a story about Bilbo and Frodo and they're the main characters, really, it's about Gollum. He has to be there at the end. It has to resolve his character angst. We are actually supposed to be relieved. One, that Gollum got to hold the ring one more time before dying because the ring destroyed him. But he gets his last moment of happiness before he falls and dies with the ring and the ring dies with him. And because we pity him, we have been taught to pity him by that dialogue from Gandalf. We also know that death may be the only way that Gollum could have come out of this okay. Mm -hmm. If the ring had been destroyed, I, I think Gollum would have lost all reason for living anyway. So because of this, it's this super satisfying moment. Now, I know there are naysayers that are really upset that Frodo kind of loses it at the end and becomes selfish. But if you really examine it, it truly is the only way it could have ended. There are also people that say if Samwise was carrying the ring, he wouldn't have been uh, overpowered by its, its temptations. I beg to differ. If Sam had been carrying it for a year and gone through everything Frodo had, he would have been just as addicted to the ring as Frodo. And I do think of the ring as an addiction. And if you think of it that way, it all makes sense. Okay, let's move on to our next story. The Hunger Games. This one's a little bit easier to tell. As you know, Katniss and Peeta are in this crazy gladiator game where they have to fight to the death. The major dramatic question is, who will survive? We like Katniss. We actually like Peeta too. They come from District 12. They're both very unlikely picks to win the tournament, and yet they have some secret skills that come out and make us all root for both of them, right? So the question is, actually, which one of them? The moment that they are reaped at the beginning, we're wondering who is going to survive in the Hunger Games, Katniss, Peeta, or neither. Now, we're guessing since we're following the story through Katniss that she could be the victor. But that would mean she has to kill Peeta, which we can't see Katniss doing. So do you see what they've done? Do you see what Susan Collins has done with this story? She's put us in a position where it seems like there's no way out because there is, we are told over and over and over that there can only be one winner. But then she does something that's, that's a little twisty. One, the love component, right? It changes the way we feel about this whole thing. And we know that all the people watching the Hunger Games are rooting for their love story. And we're like, huh, this is interesting. It, it actually makes the major dramatic question that much harder because we're like, if she has to kill Peta at the end, that is cruel. And if Peta kills her at the end, it's like, what the crap? So we really don't know what to expect as we're coming up to the ending. And then the capital does this thing where they say, hey, we're going to let there be two winners so that Katniss and Peta will come out of fighting. Well, at the last minute, 
the capital does actually what you should have been expecting them to do. And they say, just kidding. There can't be two winners. There can only be one. One of you has to kill the other. And that's where it gets very clever. It is surprising and satisfying. Katniss takes the berries that we've learned are poisonous. She hands some to Peta and says, fine. If we can't both win, then nobody wins. And for some reason throughout the entire story, the average reader, and, and I know there are some people out there that maybe figured this out or wondered on this. And I just want to say, even if you figured it out or you wondered on it, you probably still didn't know until it happened. But most people didn't even think of this, this third option, that rather than having only one winner, either Katniss or Peeta, could there be no winners? And how would that affect the capital? It's actually a form of rebellion, which is really interesting. So Katniss holds out the berries. She holds them to Peta and says, fine, we all die. And then they go to eat the berries. And of course, they call the capital out. And the capital, because they've got tons of people writing on this and loving Katniss and Peta's love story, they have to back down. So let's ask, is this surprising? I would contest that yes, it's just, this is very surprising because we didn't expect the option where there would be no winner. Is it satisfying? Is it clearly the only way it could have ended? Yes. If the story has to end with both Katniss and Peeta surviving, this is the only way that it could have ended. And this falls right in line with Katniss's audacity, her determination, and her willingness to do very hard things to stick to her beliefs. This is all very much in alignment with her character. And so when we see it, we're like, huh, that is clever. Good job, Katniss. And for most people, and I would say that the success of these books and movies would show you that for most readers, this was very satisfying. Return of the Jedi, right? The climax of the movie. Luke is facing off, off with Vader at the end. They are aboard the Death Star, the rebuilt Death Star. And they have this amazing, my all-time favorite lightsaber battle in all of the movies is in Return of the Jedi. Because, again, it has the most meaning behind every hit. We have this beautiful moment where Luke is finally beating Vader. And he's beating on him, beating on him with his lightsaber. And Vader has fallen. And the Emperor is laughing because Luke is so angry. And Luke finally beats him down and then swings his lightsaber and push, he cuts off Vader's hand. Now, this is significant because Luke had his hand cut off by Vader in the previous movie. So it's a bookend. We've come full circle, right? Luke is now strong enough to defeat Vader. Vader is on the ground. His suit is smoking. His arm has been cut off. His hand has been cut off anyway. And we see that instead of flesh and tissue there, it is all robotics. Luke looks down at, his, at Vader's missing hand, at the robotics inside of it. He looks at his own hand, which has been cybernetically replaced, and realizes he's already on the road to become Vader. Now, this is super powerful, because then what happens? The surprising thing. He shuts off his lightsaber, he throws it away, and he says the one thing that the Emperor did not expect. I won't fight he wins the fight by not fighting. And, and this is mind-blowing because, because we know that Vader is his father. And so this has a ton of meaning. Is this surprising? Yes. We don't expect Luke to just lay down. And then, is it satisfying? Is it clearly the only way it could have ended? Yes, because Vader is his father. And we remember the words of Yoda. He must confront Vader. It, he never said he must kill Vader. So he has actually confronted him and so confronted his past. Now, the next surprise, something we've never seen before. The Emperor releases these powerful electrical shocks on Luke. And he starts torturing him and it's this awful experience where Luke looks up at Vader and Vader is watching and he's like, Father! Father! And then the next surprise happens. Vader grabs the Emperor and throws him over the edge. And we learn in this moment. So let's ask, is this surprising? Yes, Vader is the ultimate evil. And somehow this link between father and son, seeing his own son suffer, awakens in him some sort of remorse. And he chooses a different path. So this is surprising because we didn't expect it from the ultimate villain. But is this clearly the only way it could have ended? 
or I should say that different. Is this clearly the way that it had to end? Yes, because they are father and son. And because Luke was not willing to defeat Vader, he was not willing to take the life of his father, it awakens this thing inside of Vader and it is very satisfying. Now, Return of the Jedi and the Star Wars franchise, at least the first three films, get away with something that is really interesting that I think is actually really difficult to do in most stories. And the reason that when Vader is turned at the end, the reason this is so satisfying and feels like the only way that it could have ended is because even though Vader is the villain, we secretly like him. There is something magnetic about Vader and his presence and this helmet. And just ask Star Wars fans and they're all like enamored by Lord Vader. And when we learn that he's Luke's father, like it makes so much sense. And yet he does all these terrible things. But somehow the writers of Star Wars and George Lucas, the director producer, uh, they, they did this dance where they make us like Vader even though he's the villain. And they try and do the same thing with Kylo Ren. And for my part, at least, they succeeded because, again, I really like Kylo Ren. And they have a similar vindication at the end. And, of course, there's there's a lot of criticism that they were just imitating the first, the original trilogy of Star Wars. But because we like Vader, when he turns on the Emperor, it is a huge, satisfying victory. All right, so we've been talking about some pretty straightforward narratives that follow that three-act structure pretty closely and that strive for this concept of a surprising climax that ends up being obviously the way that the story had to go. So I'd love to introduce one more story that puts a little spin on it. It does it a little bit differently because the narrative demands it. I want to talk about Castaway. It's a beautiful film, Robert Zemeckis, uh, really, really great, and one of my top favorite films. Tom Hanks is amazing in it, and uh, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't seen Castaway. It's just so good. But that narrative demanded some different things when it came to the climax. I actually feel like this happens pretty often in movies and a number of other stories, uh, it's what I call the the one-two punch, or uh, perhaps calling it a double climax is is a better description. I don't know. Maybe there's a book out there on structure that talks about this concept that I'm about to about to illuminate. Um, but I've never read about it anywhere. It's just something I've picked up on as I've done my own studies of stories over the years. And it's this idea that you have the major dramatic question, right? And Castaway is the perfect example of this. He gets in a plane wreck and he's stranded on this island. And the really the core tension, the antagonist, is being stranded, right? It's survival. It's being alone on an island. And so the major dramatic question is, will he survive? Will he ever get off that island? And because that's a major dramatic question and because the antagonist is the island itself by the definitions that i gave earlier the the point of greatest tension is that moment when he finally is timing the tides right he's got more familiar with the island and the way the sea works and he's prepared himself a big enough raft that has that sail on it with you know the beautiful logo of the wings wrapped in like halos um, that has become a symbol for him uh, that it, it ends up being really significant in the story. So that's the climax, right? He he decides the day has come. He loads up everything he needs, food, water, and he attempts to leave the island again, and he's got to get past the breakers. So uh, based on the definitions we've given, that is the point of tension. When he finally hits that massive wave, he releases the sail, and we don't know exactly what he's doing with that. We don't realize it's a sail up to that point. And then it flips open and it catches the wind and he rides up, 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 clears the wave and he's gotten away from the island, right? That is the climax of the movie. And it falls into the, it's a little bit surprising because we don't really know what he's doing. We don't realize it's a sail until he's achieved um, the objective. And then we realize, of course, that was the only way he was going to get off the island. So it is a climax per se. But the movie can't end there because, and this is why I call it the one-two punch. I find that often in a story, as the character progresses to overcome the, the core conflict, you know, to answer or respond to this major dramatic question, over the course of that journey, 
they discover a new obstacle in their life. And it is only after the climax that they are forced to face what I would call a second climax, or often it is more of an emotional climax, right? They have the physical confrontation with the antagonist. And then after that, they have a, a, a confrontation perhaps with themselves and with the emotional stakes of the story. Castaway is a perfect example of this because the movie cannot end there. Let me take that back. They could have ended the movie there. He got off the island and we would be like, ah, he made it. They could have ended it the moment that a ship found him. But they didn't because there was more at stake than just getting off the island. There were implications to that experience that we still needed as the viewer to have answered before we would feel satisfied with the story. Everybody wants to know. He had a wife, he had a life, uh, he had things going for him and he stepped out of it for such a long time. And they thought him, not just that he stepped out of it, it wasn't just like he was on vacation, you know, they thought he was dead. So everybody in the audience is just wondering, what is it like stepping back into that? And so they have the beautiful scene where he, you know, is holding a glass and he says, almost tearing up, like, one moment you're stranded on an island and the next, I have ice in my glass. There's ice in my glass. And you just realize the like, something so simple as, like, getting ice out of the refrigerator, like, he wasn't able to experience that for years and it takes this this and I'm, I'm tangenting here but i love these micro details that that make the story feel so tactile and lend it so much meaning the idea that just like having ice in your glass suddenly becomes meaningful when you've gone through an experience like that but it's not over right because he goes and he sees his and i'm trying to remember girlfriend wife not sure which it is but he goes and sees her and she you know thinking him dead has clearly moved on she has a family she has a husband she and you can't falter for it that's the beautiful thing about castaway too is there's no one's really at fault here it's just people trying to make their way through the world and you can't blame her for you know he passed away and she you know couldn't live her entire life you know, just staying single, she wanted to move on and have a family and, and have fulfillment in her life, um, even though she still loves him. So it's like this complicated thing, and it's beautiful. But the second climax, the one-two punch, boom, comes after all of that, and he realizes that even he is going to have to figure out a way to carry on. And he's had this package with him that's been with him since all the FedEx packages floated up on that island, and it's the one package he didn't open because it represented something. It, it represented his humanity, um, the, the idea that, you know, he works for FedEx and it's his job to get packages where they're going. He has this one package that he, that he feels like, um, first off, it probably, honestly, uh, it probably didn't have anything very useful inside of it right? I mean, that's the, that's the irony of it. Or uh, I should say, certain viewers experience Castaway and just feel so strongly that like, ah, oh, why didn't you open the package? They never show us what's in the package. And if you get the story, it doesn't matter what's in the package, right? The package was a symbol for moving on. It was the thing that held him um, helped him stick through the tough times when he was ready to commit suicide on the island, um, it's one of those things that was the shining star that continued to guide him. So when he gets back, he feels like it still needs to be delivered. So it's a beautiful scene where he's driving out in the middle of Texas and he goes to the address on the package and delivers it. And we see that symbol, the wings, um, has been welded and constructed in many different places. We'll get the vibe that it's like the logo for uh, whoever the owner of the house is because they're not home when he gets there, right? It's this icon for them, for their business. And uh, it's beautiful. He leaves the package and he leaves a note that says, this package saved my life. Heads back to the crossroads and he's looking around and he's like, it's, it's like this perfect visual representation of, okay, where do I go next? Not just in the, media, in the immediate moment, but in life in general, like what's, what's next for him? And of course the woman shows up and as Hollywood would have it, she is a, an attractive kind of cowgirl. Uh, but he sees on the back of her car that uh, there's the wings 
and he looks after she leaves and you know tells him this road goes here this goes here and this one goes to the middle of nowhere um and then she drives the road that goes to the middle of nowhere he looks at the paved roads if you notice in this scene there are three paved roads and one dirt road this is intentional and he looks down the paved roads after she leaves then looks down the dirt road where she went and he smiles and the camera fades and we're left assuming that he goes back and introduces himself to her and maybe something happens with that now that my friends is a very satisfying emotional climax is when he finally delivers the package and we get to meet the person that sent the thing that that made him hold on and we're left with the notion that maybe she will be the thing that continues to help him hold on. And interesting enough, remember I said the dirt road is important. She said it leads you to nowhere. And after living on an island for two years, he's embraced this idea of being okay, you know, headed to the middle of nowhere. Like, to me, I'm like, there's a certain certain character appeal to this idea of the middle of nowhere because of the experience that he's been through. So that's what I call the one-two punch. There's a climax that is the physical stakes, but then there's like an emotional stakes that comes after that. Uh, that is is a climax in and of itself, in my opinion. Some might call that the denouement, uh, the new balance or falling tension. Um, but I but I feel like a lot of movies do this where there's kind of two climaxes, two things to overcome in order for them to beat their physical obstacle and then their emotional obstacle. So that's Castaway. Now, I started a lot of this conversation discussing that quote from M. Night Shyamalan. And he is known, uh, reviled, uh, criticized, praised. I don't know what you want to call it. Like I said, I think many of his films are fabulous, even the ones that get heavily criticized. But he's criticized for the twist. Because he became known for having several movies that had a twist ending so my question is what is the difference between a climax that is surprising and a twist because there is a difference but if you were to venn diagram it out twists would fit inside this definition of a climax that is both surprising but obviously the way it had to be a twist fits inside that in most cases when it's done right so let's talk about one of these let's talk about sixth sense the ending of Sixth Sense. What is the big reveal? We find out that Bruce Willis's character has been dead the whole time. Huge surprise, right? Like, you didn't see it coming. It's sort of been a secret. And, and that's the key to a twist. Is it something you, you didn't see coming? And the other important thing, the difference between a twist and just a good climax is a climax, like I said, it is surprising, but obviously after we look, after we remember back on the story, it's the way things had to go. But with the twist, it's a surprise that suddenly reinterprets everything that's happened up to that point. That is the difference between a regular surprise and climax and a twist. So let's take a look at this. Sixth Sense, we find out Bruce Willis's character has been dead the whole time. And now... As we're looking back at these scenes that we've experienced, the door that he keeps going to, the conversations with his wife where she won't respond, the um, we start thinking back on how he first met um, the little boy who has this sixth sense, and we start to realize that he's never in the same room with the boy when someone else is in the room as well. And it's like this subtle, subtle way of telling us that all along that's been what's happening we just were misinterpreting the clues and that can be a super powerful way to have this surprise jarring ending while it still is clearly clearly the only way it could have happened right bruce willis once we find out that he's been dead the whole time we're like well duh you can watch the movie again and it all makes sense we just didn't have the full picture when we first watched it one thing that's super interesting about twists is it enables you to experience the narrative two times and get two totally different experiences, but both are equally rewarding. 
right? The first time you watch it and you're blown away because you did not see that coming, right? It's that, I did not see that coming moment. But then the second time you watch it and it's like you're in on the secret and you're like catching all these little nods that you missed the first time. So a twist can be very effective. The village has its own twist. Uh, Unbreakable has a bit of a twist, although I would argue Unbreakable's twist is nowhere near of the gravity of Sixth Sense or the village. It has been argued that Signs has a twist ending, but it doesn't. It's just a surprising ending that it clearly ends up being the only way it could have happened, right? Just because we learn something new at the end doesn't make it a full-on twist. Remember, a twist will force us to reinterpret everything we've seen in the movie up to this point. Now, you could argue that all of these coincidences that have happened in Graham's life during Signs while they're interpreted as coincidences the first time around, once we get to the end and we realize they were all signs of him being watched over by God, right? They're signs of um, a higher being who is in, in control of what's happening. But it doesn't force us to reinterpret the events that happened. In fact, while they're happening the first time, Graham and Joaquin Phoenix's character, who's the character's name escapes me in this moment. They even have a conversation about it of, do you believe in signs or do you believe in coincidences, right? So it's not really a twist. We, we don't like, there aren't scenes in the movie that we just totally misunderstood. It's just been something we've been grappling with the whole time. And by the time the climax happens in signs, we now understand that this story is confirming that there aren't coincidences. There are just signs. The village, on the other hand, has this huge twist at the end that forces us to reinterpret everything we thought we knew about this sort of strange kind of old Puritan society, but where things don't quite add up. So it is definitely a twist. Uh, Unbreakable as well falls in the, it's kind of got a twist because we, Samuel L. Jackson's character, we reinterpret them. We realize they've been the villain the whole time, which we didn't realize. So that's a bit of a twist, but it doesn't shake the, the world as a whole, the way that um, the village does. Um, I guess it's closer to Sixth Sense where it's a single character. It just doesn't happen to be the main character. So it doesn't feel as, as heavy of a twist there at the end. As the heavy criticism has come down uh, for M. Night Shyamalan for employing a twist too often, uh, as, as any storyteller can tell you, the moment you start using a trope or a tool or a strategy too often, it starts to become predictable. And that is like one of the top rules of storytelling is to not be predictable, right? Because the whole impetus the whole uh part of a story that grips us and makes us want to experience it is this idea of wanting to know what's happening next now i know there are plenty of stories out there that maybe aren't built around this there are other elements that can draw us into a story but for general entertainment um, for gen generally when we're talking about fiction we are curious to see what happens next. So the moment you become predictable, it removes your ability to draw the audience in and make them wonder, oh, what's coming next? What's coming next? And in M. Night Shyamalan's case, apparently too many people felt like he was leveraging a twist too often. Again, I disagree. I think most of his movies are fabulous. Um, I even like Lady in the Water, which if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It doesn't have a twist ending. I would argue to the death that it doesn't have a twist ending. Um, it's just a beautiful story that is like a microcosm of characters and it's great. I would like to end today's episode by sharing, uh, something that I heard from the writing excuses podcast. This is a beautiful podcast. They're short 15, 10 to 15 minute little episodes hosted by, you know, Brandon Sanderson, Margaret Dunlop, um, Howard Taylor, um, you know, people that have a lot of experience in the writing game and they talk about really, a, they talk about a range of super intriguing topics. If you haven't checked out writing excuses podcast, you, you've got to check it out. Um, but in a particular episode, I believe it's even Brandon Sanderson who's talking about it. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but he essentially says the following, the key to writing a story with a great ending, AKA a climax, um, and a solution, 
with a great ending to the major dramatic question is recognizing that you control expectations with how you build the story. So if you want to exceed expectations, make sure your story sets a lower expectation throughout, then the ending will be much bigger. And of course you can do the inverse, right? You can set really, really high expectations and then have it be this really, really small thing that ends up being the solution, right? I would, I would argue that that's what is done with Lord of the Rings by virtue of having these hobbits carry the ring to Mordor. It is this very small, subtle thing that ends up being able to undo the power of this terrible villain antagonist that ends up throwing down his entire kingdom, his entire reign, and it's a very small thing, but it's all built around expectations. If you can recognize what the expectation of your audience is, then you can make sure that you go above and beyond when you hit that climax. And that way it ends up being the surprise. So that was another nugget that I heard on writing excuses. And uh, I think it's really powerful to recognize in your story, to ask yourself, okay, up to this point, what are the expectations of the reader? What should they be? Because when a reader experiences a book, when a viewer experiences a movie, they start at the beginning and move forward in time. And the goal of a writer is to take them on a journey that has ups and downs, happy, sad, emotional moments, and ultimately surprises them at the end. Um, and then is satisfying in the way that things wrap up. The advantage the storyteller has is that the story doesn't happen from beginning to end for them typically. A first draft may start from beginning to end, but then you go back and you start tinkering with things. And you can do things as simple as saying, okay, at the ending, I need this thing to happen. Therefore, I'm going to start seeding it in previous scenes. Or I'm going to start seeding red herrings to make sure that that's surprising. But after it happens, they'll recognize that I have seeded it and it will help it be satisfying. So you have this power as a storyteller to go back and make sure that whatever your climax is, that you're setting appropriate expectations so that when the reader gets there, they have the desired experience. It's no easy task. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. Um, and it takes a lot of practice. And the other thing is uh, not every story works for every person because as expectations play such a big role in our takeaway of the story, so the next time that you are watching a movie or reading a book, when you get about halfway through, stop and ask yourself, okay, what is the major dramatic question right now? What am I really curious to know will happen when this movie comes to an end? Remember that MDQ and as the climax happens, see if it resolves that MDQ, if the point of tension finally overcomes what you were expecting, and then see what they do to ensure that it, it is obvious that that's the only way it could have ended, that it had to happen that way in order to be satisfying. And then take note and ask yourself, not, don't ask yourself, did I like this story or did I not like this story? You should ask yourself, was it satisfying? And if it wasn't, is that because of you or the story? All of these questions and this, this sort of intentional observance of the way that the story is happening, it'll really open your eyes to what the what the creator of the story is really getting after. And it'll really help you understand the deeper meaning behind the story. So that's my challenge to you, to pay attention as you are engaging in a story and see what they're doing to subtly play with your expectations and to afford that opportunity for a big climax at the end that is surprising, but is also obviously in hindsight, the only way it could have ended. 